Hi, it's Tara Palmieri with an update. As you may have heard, Ghislaine Maxwell was arrested today in New Hampshire on charges stemming from her role in the sexual exploitation and abuse of multiple minor girls by Jeffrey Epstein. This comes directly from the federal prosecutors at the Southern District of New York. You'll be hearing a lot from me on September 16th when the next season comes out. We're going to have a lot more information about Maxwell's arrest and what it means. We thought we should refresh our episode on Maxwell from last season right away, as listeners may be wondering how she fits into this horrifying story. According to witness statements and stacks of evidence, she played a central role in Epstein's organized network of abuse, including, according to some, actively participating in the sexual abuse of girls. Some argue that Maxwell was the real driver of the sexual abuse operation. Many have said she ran it, not Epstein. She arguably knows more than he did about who was involved and what exactly happened. Her arrest and what she says publicly could be a game changer. But first, let's get to know Ghislaine Maxwell. Her life story is fascinating, far-fetched, and even a little hard to believe. Her father was a controversial media tycoon. She grew up to become a confidant of royals and former presidents. She lived an extremely public life as a socialite in Europe and the United States. Yet she was also an expert at hiding secrets, her own and those of the many powerful people around her. Today's episode is hosted by New Yorker reporter and author Arielle Levy. The voice you're about to hear belongs to Ghislaine Maxwell. So how does it, does it all look? Is my hair good? Do I... Ghislaine Maxwell's hair looks just like the rest of her, chic and sophisticated. She looks posh. She sounds posh. Now I know I speak with a funny accent. That's her talking at the Westchester Digital Summit in 2014 about her weird, vague charity to save the ocean. It wasn't clear how she was going to do it, but it would definitely involve social media. And if you joined, you got a special, meaningless, deep-sea passport. And it's how I then go to the United Nations and say, yes, we have X thousand people who care enough that signed in, that got a passport, and then shared it with one, two, three a hundred, a thousand, a million of their friends, and we are going to create a global community. This was her public face. But there was another side to Ghislaine, Noel, Marion, Maxwell. Imagine you're a 16-year-old girl, beautiful, ambitious, full of promise. You go to high school, and you work part-time as a waitress at a fancy hotel or club like Mar-a-Lago. But your dream is to become a model or an actress, and you're just waiting for your big break, and you're wondering how it'll come. Then one day, an elegant older woman with a British accent comes up to you and tells you she thinks you're special, that you're destined for greatness. I don't see the things that divide us. Normally what divides us, creed, color, caste, religion, sex, age, I don't see those things. I see us as one species with one home and one common destiny. She says she'll take care of everything. She'll take care of you. And then she goes to the other side of town. Now, imagine you're 16, beautiful. You go to high school sometimes, and you work at McDonald's. You don't really have time to dream because you're working so hard, and your life is chaotic and unstable. Your parents are in and out of work. Maybe there are drug problems. Maybe there's jail time. Maybe you've been physically or sexually abused. And as young as you are, you've already been through a lot, and sometimes you feel really desperate. And then one day, an elegant older woman pulls up next to you on the street, 
and tells you she can wipe away your problems and get you $200 more than your dad makes in a day, and all you have to do is give a rich guy a massage for an hour. She'll take care of everything. She'll take care of you. She introduces herself as Ghislaine. Ghislaine Maxwell. I'm Arielle Levy, and this is Broken, Jeffrey Epstein. For decades, financier Jeffrey Epstein ran an international sex trafficking ring of underage girls basically in plain sight. But he didn't do it alone. Ghislaine Maxwell was his right-hand woman. She was the one who connected this college dropout from Brooklyn to what would otherwise have been the impenetrable echelon of American presidents, British royalty, and world-famous scientists. She also allegedly coordinated and participated in Epstein's sex trafficking operation. Her father is considered one of the crooks of the century in the United Kingdom, and he died under mysterious circumstances. Now, her own co-conspirator is dead, and investigators are zeroing in on her but she's barely been seen in years. This week, who is Ghislaine Maxwell? Stay with us. Let me ask you something. If you did find her, what would you ask her? What would I ask her? I mean, where do you start? This is Daniel Bates. He's a freelance reporter currently covering the Epstein case for the Daily Mail. Do you feel any sense of responsibility? Do you want to apologize? Um, What do you think about the victims? Do you have anything to say to them? I mean, the allegations against her are so serious. Ghislaine Maxwell is accused of scouting and recruiting teenage girls for Jeffrey Epstein. Not only that, she allegedly trained them to recruit more girls, like some sick pyramid scheme. Allegedly, she taught them how he wanted to have sex. And they say she actively participated in this sex with teenagers. Of course, she denies all of that. Outside Epstein's mansions and private island, she'd be by his side jet-setting to functions and galas with some of the world's richest and most powerful people. You just got to look at the flight logs. I mean, she's, she's flying all the time with, with Epstein, all the time. And, you know, I, I feel like there's only two reasons you're on Epstein's plane. Well... You know, you're either involved in sex trafficking or you're a victim of sex trafficking. Um, And, um, you know, while Ghislaine has strongly denied the allegations in, you know, depositions, um, it's it's very, very suspicious that she's flying with a guy who's, you know, admitted having sex with underage girls for a very long period of time after that, after 2008. I mean, what, what, is, what is she doing? Um, what, what is she up to? In August, Jeffrey Epstein killed himself in a jail cell. It was the second time in Ghislaine's life that an important man died in a mysterious and dramatic way. Early 1990s, uh, the most important man in her life dies under mysterious circumstances. She disappears off the face of the earth, reappears in New York, starts a new life. 2019, the most important man in her life, you know, dies under mysterious circumstances. Again, there's a raft of conspiracy theories. Um, She disappears off the face of the earth, only to resurface where, you know, it's... (laughs) I mean, it feels like history repeating itself. Ghislaine Maxwell's history starts outside Paris. Christmas Day, 1961. 
She was born to a scholar named Elizabeth and the media tycoon Robert Maxwell. Robert Maxwell, he's a fascinating character. I mean, I think the best way for an American audience who haven't heard of him before to understand who Robert Maxwell is, I mean, imagine um, a combination of Rupert Murdoch and Donald Trump, only uh, an avowed socialist and from the Czech Republic. Um, I mean, I can't. I can't imagine what you just said. It just <laughs> broke my brain. Yeah, it's it's kind of, um, you know, he's uh, metaphorically and literally larger than life. Six foot tall, about 300 pounds. He was um, a bully, a very successful businessman. He owned multiple different kind of businesses. He was um, charming when he needed to get something. And, um, you know, he sort of lived this 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 incredible ostentatious life. He um, There's a great line in the New York Times obituary about him where uh, they said um, he uh, he never took a car where, where a helicopter would do. And I think that's probably a fair assessment. <laughs> he used to fly around on his helicopter from his 56-room um, uh, mansion in, in Oxfordshire to his, his, uh, his office in central London, his penthouse office. You know, this was someone who... Um, um, enjoyed being in public life, enjoyed power, enjoyed wealth and, and fame, but at the same time, he was, you know, unpleasant. He was a bully and he was ruthless. Robert Maxwell had a publishing empire. He had companies in the United Kingdom, Germany, the United States. At one point, he owned the New York Daily News. He stood as a member of parliament for Buckingham. He was a decorated veteran who served the British Army during World War II. He owned two soccer clubs, and he even tried to buy Manchester United once. But he had a troubled history. In 1971, the U.K. government found that he had manipulated the stock price of a company he traded. A government report concluded he was unsuited to head a public company. Meanwhile, he fathered nine children, the youngest of whom was Guylaine. She was without doubt his favorite. Um, it seems like um, he sort of um, he doted on her. He called his yacht uh, the, uh, the Lady Guylaine. On November 5th, 1991, Robert Maxwell's body was found floating in the ocean near the Lady Guilen as it sailed by the Spanish Canary Islands. It was a dark end to an ignoble life. Essentially what he did was he raided the pension funds of his companies to the tune of about $500 million. And this all came out after he died. Um, the sort of thinking was that you know that he was trying to keep them afloat, and he was, um, you know, sort of well, it's it would have been fraud basically. He used money that he shouldn't have done to try and keep the business afloat. And had he lived, then this shame and this this would have become public. He would have very likely gone on trial, um, and you know, there's a very good chance that everything would have fallen apart. So. When he died and, and fell off his yacht in 1991, all these conspiracy theories said, well, you know, he knew the game was up. He, he obviously, you know, committed suicide. But, I mean, uh, uh, you know, Mirror employees said that he liked to sort of pee off the side of his boat at night and, and he may have slipped and fell. And there was a lot of conspiracy theories, but, but you know, no, no one really knows what happened. It was a pretty big fall for a guy who was able to infiltrate English aristocracy against all odds. Robert Maxwell was Jewish and he was an immigrant. He didn't exactly fit in with the legacy of British nobility. And he had a very fractious relationship with the sort of British establishment. He sort of said, I don't give a damn, you know, I never give in, I never will. And, uh, but, you know, it, it felt like he, he you know, like, like, like Donald Trump professed not to give a damn and do it his own way. But, you know, in Trump's case, he secretly, desperately wants to be, you know, written about fawningly by the New York Times. And I think there was an element of that with Maxwell as well. After Robert Maxwell's death, when this giant of UK society was revealed to be a swindler, his family fell into disgrace. But if what her accusers say is true, 
Gieland's takeaway from that seems to have been that you can defraud the public for years without paying much cost. Rather than stay and face the consequences, she fled. Gieland flew on the famous supersonic Concorde, heading to America to start over. After he died, she moved to New York and in the early 1990s and uh, it, it essentially sort of, you know, uh, you know, I mean, the kind of British socialite, a whiff of scandal. I mean, it's a delicious story, which, you know, for an American audience, they must have just lapped it up. And, and I feel like the sort of, you know, people would be more forgiving over here. And she was able to kind of reinvent herself on, on this side of the pond, whereas I don't know if that would have been quite so possible in the UK. We don't know how Gieland met Epstein, but the Times of London puts it at some point in the early 1990s. She seems to have been the one who sort of kind of, uh, on a social level, opened a lot of doors to Jeffrey Epstein, you know. And, and for whatever reasons, you know, with, with, with her, as to why she was sticking around, she seems to have wanted to work with, with Epstein and open up her kind of contacts book for him, open up this world to him and sort of draw him in. So, you know, I feel like it's, it's her connections and her... You know, her being such a, a good host and, 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 and knowing all these people and a great networker, she was able to kind of, you know, bring all this to Epstein. So why would a Parisian-born British socialite want to help some guy from Brooklyn who's obsessed with teenagers? You know, if you look at her relationship with her dad, I think that that may well have a lot to do with it. I mean, I think they were very similar men and both very domineering. Well, it's unavoidable. I mean, yeah. so much of what you just said, I, I thinking about how it all applies to Epstein, and mm. not just in terms of being, you know, ruthless in various ways and larger than life, but also in terms of using the brute force of money to, you know, permeate the highest circles of wasp wealth elite when he's Jewish. Both felt that they're indestructible. You know, I mean, Epstein repeatedly talked about the fact that he thought he was beyond justice and above the law, and, and that was a badge of pride for him. And, and, and I think Robert Maxwell um, felt the same, um, same as that. I think there was that quote from him. He said um, something like, "I never give in. I never run away. I believe in what I'm doing, and I don't care what you think of me." There's a, there's a hubris. There's a defiance there, and and the sort of the indestructibility, um, the the controlling element, and I think especially with regards to women. Um, uh, Tom Bauer, who uh, wrote a really good biography of uh, Robert Maxwell, he had this jaw-dropping anecdote about um, Ghislaine, um, where supposedly she was representing her dad at a dinner in New York for um, the Nazi hunter, Simon Wiesenthal. And um, the next day she rings up her, her father, who was in Moscow, and sort of gives him a report of the proceedings, but he was furious at her. And Bauer actually sort of somehow has a letter that she wrote to her dad in, in the book, and it reads, I'm very sorry that my description of the dinner was inadequate and made you angry. I should have expressed that I was merely presenting you with a preliminary report and that a full written report was to follow. She then gave him this long oh written, written report with a long description of how every guest had been, you know, praising her father. I, I mean... It, it just shows how I mean. It shows how oppressed she was by her dad, you know. And at the same time, you know, it, it, it's just you know, she. She may have been his favorite. He may have doted on her, but at the same time, at its core, he was very much in control, and she was very much kind of doing his bidding. And and you, you know, you see that uh, all over with Epstein. It's almost like Ghislaine Maxwell's childhood was designed to prime her for her role in Epstein's world. She's used to serving a fraudulent, controlling egomaniac. She's got the perfect background for it. That might explain it, but so what? Unlike almost every other woman in Epstein's orbit, Ghislaine came into it as an adult. She wasn't coerced. She did the coercing, just as much as Epstein. 
If you're a teenage girl and some old guy pulls up next to you on the street in his car, even if that car is a Mercedes, you know to keep on walking. But if it's another woman and she sounds all fancy and well-educated, you're probably going to get in the car. I don't feel, you know, compassion or sorry for Ghislaine. Without Ghislaine, how many people would Epstein have abused? Obviously, you know, he has a lot of money. We had a lot of money and, you know, he has means and he was very determined. But without someone, you know, who, you know, can put other women at ease, um, you know, act as cover for him, Get, use the British accent and the and the sort of the sort of high standing to make it seem legitimate. Give it the polish of legitimacy. How how many fewer people would 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 have this happened with? Because for me, that's that's the sort of worst part of what Ghislaine did, making Epstein seem legitimate and 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 giving him this veneer of respectability. That's what she she lent to him. And that enabled him, I think, to do this abuse on a far grander scale than he otherwise would have been able to. And that's, for me, the sort of most pernicious part of, of, of Ghislaine's contribution to this. Daniel Bates is a freelance journalist living in New York. His work has appeared in The Guardian, The Daily Beast, and The Times of London. Recently, he has been investigating the Jeffrey Epstein scandal in depth for The Daily Mail. In a moment, what's next for Ghislaine? There is definitely an investigation into Ghislaine Maxwell. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. So Ghislaine's father gives us some sense of where this mysterious woman came from. But one thing we don't know is where she is now. After years of showing up at events and galas, she's all but vanished. She's been laying low since a victim sued her for defamation in 2015. For more on this, let's hear from our special correspondent, Julie Brown of the Miami Herald. It was clear from what his victims told authorities that he didn't do this all by himself and that there were many people who helped him. And one of the people whose name kept coming up was Gielan's name. Uh, In specific, even some of his employees who were deposed during some of these lawsuits uh, mentioned her frequently that she was – there at the house all the time that she was the person who supervised the staff. She was the person that helped also to some degree with his schedule. And she used to go uh, to spas throughout Palm Beach and 
leave her she said she was leaving her business card but we know that at one particular spa Mar-a-Lago uh, she recruited uh, one of Epstein's victims Virginia Roberts and Virginia is important to this story Virginia was a little bit different, I think, than the other girls they had recruited. She was very, very vulnerable because she had been uh, trafficked before when she was very young, even younger. She she came, she was a, about, uh, it was right around her 17th birthday when she was recruited, but she looked much younger than 17. And in, you know, when she was 14, she was already being trafficked in Miami. Uh, so she was very, very, uh, she had gone through hard times on the street. And so when she met them, she found, she found in a way, uh, some kind of um, way to survive and thrive in some aspects because they took care of her. I mean, they helped her with her health care. You know, if she got sick, they took her to a doctor. I mean, she had nowhere to go. And basically what happened was she got closer to them, I think, than a lot of the other people that, that were involved in their operation. Uh, they treated her more uh, like a daughter in some aspects of it. And they wanted her at one point because she was just so much part of their world. Uh, they obviously felt comfortable enough to ask her if she would be willing to have a baby that she would you know, give birth to and then give over to them. I've seen Virginia talking about this. She says that one day they were snorkeling off Epstein's private island, and when they were taking off their gear, Ghislaine proposed something. It really sounds straight out of A Handmaid's Tale. Ghislaine wanted Virginia to be a kind of surrogate for her and Epstein. They'd impregnate her. She'd carry a baby to term, give birth, and then hand over her child. She'd relinquish all parental rights. And in exchange, they'd give her an allowance of $200,000 a month. It would be one of the last tasks for her to fulfill in Epstein's world. At that point, she was 19, and they were really joking almost about putting her out to pasture, so to speak, because she was at an age where they weren't um, interested in having sex with her anymore. So at that point, she knew that it was time to go, and, and she found a way to get out of um, the situation she was in with them because she was very disturbed by the the idea that they would even ask her to do something like that. And she had matured enough, you know, at 19 to know that this whole thing was wrong. I mean, it's it's hard to stomach what you just said. I mean, also, I want to clarify when you say they were, you know, ready to put her out to pasture, they were going to stop being interested in sex with her. So uh, presumably Ghislaine is involved in this sex. It's not just Jeffrey Epstein and Virginia. It's the three of them. Yeah, and she was. And actually it was Ghislaine that, that, you know, according to Virginia, it was Ghislaine that joked about, you know, her getting too old. I think Virginia tells this story about how it was a birthday party that she had. I don't know if it was her 18th birthday or her 19th birthday, but they had a birthday party for her. And she it was Ghislaine uh, who allegedly said, oh, my gosh, you're getting too old now. We're going to have to, you know, you're just not going to be able to satisfy us anymore, sort of kind of thing. Um, so, so in any event, she... She told them from the get-go, the way that they lured her in is that they promised to train her to be a, a true massage therapist, which, of course, they really didn't do. It was really a ruse for them to train her to satisfy uh, Jeffrey Epstein. So 
she made them promise her that they would actually, you know, send her somewhere to get real training to become a massage therapist so that she could actually have something, some kind of a career to do after after living with them for, for these years. But that never happened, presumably. Well, well the, he, he they did come up with a plan for her to go to Thailand to get some kind of training. And she did go to Thailand. In fact, they also said, we want you to pick up a, a Thai girl for us and bring her back to us. They gave her instructions on who, you know, where to go and, and who she was supposed to pick up. And she went for the training and she met um, what, who later became her future husband, and she never went back. Years later in 2009, Robert sued Epstein, alleging he sexually abused her when she was 16. It's in this suit that Roberts accused Maxwell of sexually assaulting her, too. Investigators had a hard time getting Maxwell to appear in court. Of course, she wouldn't talk to me, so we got a uh, subpoena for her to appear for a deposition. That's Mike Fiston talking with Julie. He was a detective sergeant in the Miami Police Department. And after working homicide cases for decades, he decided to retire and become a P.I. And I figured I'll become a private investigator now and uh, I'll do some slip and falls, a couple of uh, personal injury cases, maybe some missing person cases. And, you know, the, the first phone call I got was about this case. And I figured, oh, you know, it's a sex abuse case, two girls. I go, it'll take me like a week to finish. And... Uh, who knew what I was walking into, that you know, I, I, I started this case, and 10 years later, I'm still working this case. Maxwell may be lying low now, but back in 2009, she was everywhere. She was out on the circuit, wanting to be seen. His team just had to serve her. We um, contracted with some New York City detectives who also work as investigators, and they went out to serve her, and um, there was some information in a local paper that she was going to be at some Clinton Foundation event. And they went there, and they got her as she was leaving, uh, coming out of the event, and they served her there. So she didn't appear for the deposition. Right. And so can you explain to us exactly, you know, why she didn't, why you weren't ever able to depose her? I remember now that she, um, her lawyer said she was out of the country in Europe. And she couldn't appear for the deposition. And we had nothing. We tried to find out if it was true or not at the time. We couldn't find out. But then I believe right after that, People magazine, I think it was People, came out with the pictures from Chelsea Clinton's wedding. And there, sitting right there in the audience at the time she was supposed to be appearing for her deposition, was uh, Glenn Maxwell at the wedding in the audience. So it was clear that she was giving wrong information about you know, why she couldn't appear for the deposition. Correct. So did she ever appear for any depositions with you? I believe not. No. Why do you think she did all this? Do you think she was in love with him? Was this the reason she did it? Why do you think she got involved in this? Well, there's two theories. One, um, she was in love with Jeffrey. The other theory was, um, you know, she, she her family lost substantial amounts of money, and Jeffrey took care of her. You know, Jeffrey gave her a lifestyle that she that she was uh, used to when her dad was alive. And that um, I think that she, you know, Jeffrey was her way of surviving. What? Where do you think she is now? Do you have any idea? Um, I don't know where she is, but I guarantee you the feds know exactly where she's at. 
It's strange to imagine Maxwell's life now. No more high-profile conferences or celebrity weddings, no more galas, no more yachts. All right, well, she could actually be on a yacht. But wherever she is, you know she's waiting for a call that's obviously going to come. And it's only a matter of time. Send us your questions and comments about the Epstein case to broken at 3uncanny4.com. We'd love to hear what's on your mind. Broken, Jeffrey Epstein, is produced by 3 Uncanny 4 Productions. Our senior producers are TJ Raphael and Krista Ripple. Dan Bobkoff is our showrunner. We had production and research help this week from Jennifer Siegel, Jack Panyard, and Oliver Lazarus. Matt Hauser is our engineer, and Casey Holford composed our theme. Our special correspondent and executive producer is Julie K. Brown. Our other executive producers are Adam Davidson, Laura Mayer, Adam McKay, and Kevin Messick. Share your thoughts on Twitter with the hashtag BrokenJeffreyEpstein. Follow me at AVLSkies, that's A-V-L-S-K-I-E-S. Follow Julie Brown at JKB Journalist. Rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners like you find us. For Broken, I'm Arielle Levy.